Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name is Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined by our Australian New Zealand chairman, Sean McCarthy. Hey, Sean. Hi, Dominic. I've requested you specifically for this episode, Sean. <laughs> because, I mean, you, you go back to the start of the company in, in Australia and New Zealand and to have a keen sense of history of, of where we've come from and, and where we've been and all that. And the question I had today, which gets asked a fair bit from our network, is where did the, the circumplex in particular come from? How did that start? You know, what's the research behind it and so on? I thought you're the, you're the man to ask. Thank you. <laughs> the old guy gets to talk about the old stuff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But I think it's really valuable, and I know, um, you know, the so the circumplex is what we use to measure thinking and behavior. So, so twelve different styles, and so on. But yeah. how did it come to be? Because it wasn't a thing that really existed uh, prior to that, right? Well, a, a circumplex was in fact invented by Timothy Leary before he got involved with the drug culture in the nineteen sixties. So, I think fifty seven, fifty eight, he wrote the book, The Interpersonal Diagnosis of Personality. Mm. And he proposed this notion of a circumplex, which positions variables in relationship to each other. And uh, Clay was always very, and Clay Lafferty, that is, who founded Human Synergistics, uh, was always fascinated with uh, that notion of being able to position factors together as opposite similarities, except quadrants, whatever, etc. So uh, I'm going to set up a story for you. If you can imagine Clay Lafferty, this guy, in his, at that stage, late 30s, sitting in a lecture by probably at those days one of the most famous researchers in the world called M. Scott Myers. And M. Scott Myers did the famous Texas Instruments studies back in the 1950s, which were the seminal studies on the impact of what was called in those days the human relations movement on productivity. So he worked at Texas Instruments, a very large manufacturing facility, and he set up a research project looking at uh, using control groups where nothing was different, Mm-hmm. and experimental groups where they ex- uh, experience things like uh, active participation and involvement in decision-making, much more human-centered leadership and supervision, uh, all these things that we talk about today in terms of being good for people at work. Mm. And uh, to cut a very, very long story short, the uh, differences in productivity between the experiment group and the control groups was enormous, something to the factor of 20. Wow. And uh, interestingly, I mean, it's now 50 years, 60 years later, and we still have people saying, I'm not sure this stuff works when it's um, done and dusted 60 years ago. So anyway, M. Scott Myers was running a lecture series, and Clay Lafferty attended this. And he was, so all the stuff I'm going to talk about very shortly was running around inside his head. So try and create this picture of this guy sitting in this lecture. M. Scott Myers says something that, prompts a thought process in Clay's head and he starts writing and drawing. And at the end of it, it's the circumplex, as we know it, more or less today. It's had some changes over the years, obviously. And M. Scott Myers actually came down off the podium to uh, Clay and say, gosh, you are one of the most attentive students I've ever experienced. You seem, <laughs> you must have written everything that I said. And Clay didn't have the heart to say to him, actually, I wasn't listening. At all. I was off in La La Land, I was so, doing the circumplex. Yeah. I love it. So, this is what was running around inside Clay's head. Clay was always fascinated with the work of David McClelland. David McClelland had developed the need mode, need, uh, the motivic needs theory for achievement, affiliation, and power. 
And he was the first, and this is why Clay loved his work, he was the first researcher to show a direct relationship between individual thinking styles, if you like, and performance. So the numerous studies over time that McClellan had undertaken showed that those higher in achievement and uh, lower in power, et cetera, and all those higher in achievement outperformed those high in power. And uh, so this was ingredient number one. Clay was looking for a way of measuring achievement, affiliation and power and various other things that were running around inside his head where McClelland hadn't done that. The other mainstream of thought was Abraham Maslow's work. So Clay uh, simply adored the whole notion of self-actualization and self-actualizing. Also the work of Carl Rogers in there around self-actualizing. And he was really dedicated to finding a way to help people, as we would say in common language today, achieve their personal potential. Uh. In technical terms, become self-actualizing and reach a state of self-actualization. So none of that stuff was measured because, of course, Maslow never did any quantitative research around his points. And Clay was determined to find a way to measure self-actualizing. The third mainstream of thought was running around inside his head was where somebody like McClellan had measured high achievement or high power, low power, high um, affiliation, low affiliation or whatever. There was nothing being measured to indicate if I'm not high power or high achievement, what am I high in? Mm, right. And so he was he was determined to find a way to sort of explain the lack of achievement or lack of power or lack of affiliation or whatever in individuals that McClellan hadn't done. So we just got these three main thoughts here. One, how do I measure McClellan stuff? Two, how do I measure Maslow and Rogers stuff? And thirdly, how do I develop an explanation for somebody who's not high in achievement, what's stopping them from being high in achievement, and more importantly, how can they become high in achievement? And it was in context, Sean, of the Timothy Leary of how can I map it and yeah. show it, how it, yep. how yep. it sits relative to each other. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So he, he really pulled Leary's circumplex apart, and he believed, and I agree with him entirely, that he found a, a actual better way of doing it. But that somebody's got to start somewhere with the stuff, and that's mm. the work that Leary did before he went crazy with the drug culture in the sixties. By the way, <laughs> because like he got, a whole another podcast. Well, it is another whole story. He got <laughs> he got fired from Harvard University for using illicit drugs and experiments. Was, wasn't he the um? Was it sign up? Turn on, tune in, and trip out, that, man of the nineteen sixties. So it. when I so when I first started in this stuff in the nineteen seventies, it was only ten years since. Um, Leary had used that famous line. So, of course, CEOs knew all about the turn on, tune in, and trip out <laughs> stuff. And we were measuring it, apparently. That was challenging. So, he was trained, well trained in the body of work of two other people that really answered that third question. So, if I'm not high in achievement, what's stopping me, et cetera? And that's the work of uh, Karen Horney and Harry Stack Sullivan. Oh. Under-recognized work, but very, very powerful work. Stack Sullivan worked for the military for most of his life, developed, in fact, the first assessment test for the military, and uh, he developed the whole idea of security orientations, the need for dependence, the need for conventionality, the need for avoidance, etc. This whole tendency to be primarily concerned with protecting myself and achieving a state of physical and psychological security. So... During the Scott Myers session, something that Myers said plugged Clay into, okay, that's what's stopping people from beginning to be, from being high in self-actualizing or high in achievement, is this need to feel safe and secure rather than to go out and experience life. And 
desire for security rather than the desire for satisfaction. So you can see the shape of the circumplex coming out already. Mm. The other person, uh, Karen Horney's work, again, very seminal in the early 20th century, was around perfectionism, as we know, she called it competence, competitive power, again, oppositional kind of ways of thinking, mm. that now using power, powerful styles of thinking and behaving in order to achieve a sense of security. So again, both her work and Stack Sullivan's work came from a need for security rather than a need for satisfaction. So at some particular point in time, something went click in Clay's head and he said, right, you got at the top of the tree self-actualizing. So if you've forgotten this from your original training, the circumplex is in effect a hierarchy, that self-actualizing is the most constructive and avoidance is the most offensive. So when I'm not highly respecting of myself, when I don't value myself that high, I will feel threatened and avoid two opposites. We decided, he decided the left-hand side would be task-oriented, the right-hand side would be people-oriented as you're looking at it. So very similar to self-actualizing but somewhat more people-oriented was Roger's work on humanist encouraging and of course his work on self-actualizing. And opposite that was uh, comments that Horney had made about the need to achieve security through criticism. So automatically he had a seven opposite one. Similar to humanist encouraging, but even more people oriented as affiliation. And so on and so forth. Uh, moving to the left side, similar to self-actualizing, but uh, somewhat more task-oriented as achievement style he placed there. And uh, this is the only style that he had more impact on than an historic researcher, and that is dependence orientation. Oh. So a belief that my effort can't make much of a difference, and I'm not particularly valuable, so I just go with the wind. It has some underpinnings of Stack Sullivan's work for sure, but there's actually a lot of Clay's original thinking in that one. And so on and so forth as you run your way around the circumplex, basically. And so, I mean, there's a lot of theories that were combining in there. Yeah. So is, is that quite unique, Sean, of it how is. those were combined? It was a first, a complete synthesis of personal thinking styles. And of course, keep in mind with the LSI that they are, in fact, two different tools. We tend mm. to get caught up in the self and other stuff, and we even use those expressions for obvious reasons in the instruments. Mm. But LSI-1 is a separate instrument to LSI-2. LSI-1 is looking at my thinking and how I think and feel about myself, and LSI-2 is how those other people experience my behavior through their own personal lenses. And each can be uh, dealt with separately. So when I first started with human synergistics in 1978, there was no such thing as LSI2. Clay was a classic cognitive psychologist. He was interested in measuring people's thinking and the implications that, that thinking had for personal effectiveness. It was really due to customer pressure and an effort to be responsive to the customer demands that LSI2 was born about four years later where people simply wanted to see what do other people experience in me. And that's why the, the inventory is structured as it is when he's looking to measure thinking. The technical phrase for the inventory design is called the adjectival descriptive method. So here's a bunch of adjectives. How descriptive are those adjectives of you? Do you see yourself as somebody who enjoys teaching, is a good teacher, gets angry easily, mm. avoids conflict, etc.? All these things are simply adjectives and how much do I think I do that? Mm. And again, the adjectival descriptive method lends itself to the Gutman scale, it's the scale that's used in the LSI in terms of a essentially unlike me, like me quite often, like me most of the time, as opposed to a Likert scale. So why the difference, Sean? Because I know I get a lot of 
and a debut is like, oh, I wanted a, a medium or a, like yeah, a, yeah. you know, sometimes like me. Well, interesting. So, people have said to me over the years, why did he choose a Gutman scale and not a Lickett scale? And my yeah. answer to that is because Rensis Lickett actually suggested he use a Gutman scale. <laughs> right. So uh, if you don't recognize that name, Lickett, in Australia, he seems to be known as Likert, but L-I-K-E-R-T. But trust me, his name is pronounced Lickett. And he uh, had by that stage retired from the uh, Institute of Social Research, University of Michigan, and did an early review through Dr. Robert Cook, who's now had a lifetime association with human synergistics. And in those early days suggested that the adjectival descriptive method best lend itself to a yes-no type of response. And Clay felt it needed a bit more than that. So it's what's called a modified government scale. So it's sort of like a no, oh, yeah, maybe. And oh yeah, absolutely, kind of thing, the zero, one, two. And it works better than a Likert scale because if you use a Likert scale with an adjectival descriptive method, you end up with a lot of middle-of-the-road type of responses because we're everything at some stage. Mm. Right, so it's kind of forcing that choice a yeah. bit yeah. and putting them out there. And it works. It and works, it works, yeah. It works extremely well. So, Sean, why 12 stars? Why, <laughs> why not Why not 14? Why not 10? Why not? Yep. Okay, that's a very, very good question. It's for learning purposes, simple as that. I mean, there are thousands of ways. Clay always used to use the, I mean, I like, quite like the throwaway line that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in Psychiatry is the, uh, the basic handbook for diagnosing mental illness. And I can't remember the exact numbers, and it doesn't really matter. But in DSM-3, which is around the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual version 3, which was around in those days, he always used to say, look, there's a, 174 different psychological psychiatric illnesses listed in the book, and there's on average 10 subtypes. So there's 1,740 ways you can be insane. The difference between insanity and sanity is the ability to make choices. So if there's 1,740 ways of not being able to make a choice, there's got to be millions of ways of being able to choose. So he focused on 12 because at that stage, he was very interested in the whole process of adult learning. So he started the commercial life of human synergistics with desert survival and subarctic survival as two tools to teach collective problem solving, using experiential learning to do so. And so by settling on 12, it becomes a clock. And when I say nine o'clock, you immediately know where nine o'clock is. So once you get used to the numbers associated with the styles, when I talk about competitive style, you know, I can straight away go to your profile at nine o'clock and see where it is. Mm. And so it's principally for learning purposes. Yes, we accept there are lots more behaviors and ways of thinking about yourself out there than we measure. Mm. We measure what we think makes a genuine difference. We measure what is eminently measurable and we measure what impacts your personal effectiveness. Mm. So I love it. So Clay was doing this in the lecture right? yeah. at the start. He was, yep. he was yep. writing it up yep. Yep. and yep. drawing it up. Yeah, so he hit, he hit on the reality of uh, Stack Sullivan's work and Karen Horney's work being the opposite to the uh, other two guys and uh, started drawing it up. He always wanted a circumflex because he liked Leary's work. So he started mm-hmm. with a circle, said, well, task people, satisfaction, security, achievement, avoidance, humanistic, oppositional, achievement, dependent, perfectionistic, conventional, approval, competitive, and there you've got it. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, like, there's a lot going on in that. It's, it seems pretty incredible that he came up with all that at, at that time. He was a brilliant man. He really was. He was referred to as a Renaissance man. He was a great thinker. Mm. And uh, he could think 
both spatially with words and with pictures. And so I can just I can just see him sitting there drawing the circle and turning it into a circumflex. So in his old age, he taught himself how to paint. He was actually a very, very good artist. Yeah, there you, there you go. And I guess what, what happened next then, John? So he put this together. Yeah. And then what did he do with it? What was his vision for it? Well, he was surprised by his own success. I mean, right. yeah. <laughs> I don't think he ever sat down in a sort of a commercial sense and said, this is my vision, that he developed a tool. He took it to the ISR group at University of Michigan and said, look, it seems to work. It's important that it's uh, deemed to be academically reliable and valid. And so uh, Dr. Robert Cook was allocated from the ISR Institute for Social Research Survey Research Centre to work with Clay on the original version of the Lifestyles Inventory, which we now know as LSI-1. Uh, to undertake all the reliability and validity testing. And, I mean, again, Rob will tell the story about how he, he wasn't initially very interested. I mean, he was an academic. Academics, almost by definition, don't like commercial tools. Uh-huh. But he went along and had a look, and he, he actually said to his own masters that, look, I'll spend a couple of hours with Dr. Lafferty, and if I like what I'm hearing, I'll agree to it. If I don't, I'm not going to get involved. And uh, something like 30 ideas later, he's still involved. He obviously liked what he heard. He was very impressed with what he saw. And it's expanded, Sean, since, cause it, so it started with thinking, right? LSI yeah. 1, which yeah. we call it today, but, but that's where Clay's head was at the time. Yeah. But now we measure groups, yeah. impact, culture. Yeah. So like, yeah. how did it make that leap? Oh, that was the impact of uh, Dr. Robert Cook, who continued to work as an academic at the University of Michigan, then moved across to the uh, University of Illinois in Chicago, where he's now emeritus professor. And in his work with uh, MBA students and postgraduate students, thesis students, etc., he was involved you know, in students working in project groups. So he got interested in the whole idea of measuring group behavior. So the GSI and the OCI, for that matter, are co-productions between Rob and, and Clay, where Clay had the, uh, the circumplex. Rob decided that the circumplex was so strong that rather than simply develop a group styles inventory of his own, mm that he would partner with Clay, develop the survey, do the research around the reliability and validity, but it would be based around the circumplex with those mm-hmm. outcome questions. And likewise with the OCI, the Organisational Culture Inventory, that um, he developed a survey in the uh, early 1980s called the, the um, oh gosh, survey, it was a safety survey for nuclear power stations. Systems Reliability Survey, that's what it was called, and we used that for one major client in this part of the world in the 80s. And Systems Reliability Survey was designed for nuclear power stations to look at what uh, were the factors that influenced safety performance. And uh, cut again, a very long story short, the strongest uh, indicators were the cultures of the organizations, Mm. not the numbers of lunchbox meetings and things like that that they had. So he really put all the safety stuff to one side and said, well, if safety's got more to do with culture than anything else, then I'll focus on the culture. He also found, of course, as he uh, crunched numbers on continued studies and reliability and validity around the LSI data, and most of you will have seen a slide at the accreditation associated with this, where organisations seem to promote aggressive defensive, or people who use aggressive defensive behaviour, even though they recognise that aggressive defensive behaviour and aggressive defensive individuals do not produce out very good outcomes. Uh. And so this was uh, the notion that there's something about the system that is reinforcing this undesirable behavior, despite the fact that we see it as undesirable. And that's culture. And we see that even playing out today. 
here in Australia that behaviour that is deemed to be undesirable is accepted because the culture reinforces that undesirable behaviour and eventually it's going to have a cost. And we see it all the time, don't we? People say, oh, we don't want these aggressive leaders, but then they keep getting promoted. Correct. So Correct. I've, I've always thought our, our mission, Sean, which uh, is at the start of this, is you know to change the world one organisation at a time. I've always wondered, is that, will we know we've done it when we have to change the norms on the instrument? Because to score high yeah. on aggressive, you have to score higher now, you know? Yeah. like <laughs> that, that would be nice. So we just, uh, that's why we give the transformation awards because it allows us to say, well, there's one more organisation that's joined that group of organisations that collectively are helping change the world. Mm. I mean, nobody changes the world easily, unfortunately, but it needs to change. And then you get these shock things like the financial sector here in Australia that might help, might not help make that change happen. Right, because it's brought it into consciousness now. Yeah. Let's see. Anyway, I love that walk down, down memory lane, Sean, and I mean, it's fascinating where it came from and what the intention was behind it. And I know Clay had a vision that, you know, it was, it was about helping ordinary people be able to understand yeah. themselves better yeah. rather than just being left to psychologists and so on. Yeah, I think rather than sort of like a financial or growth-oriented vision, he did, you're quite right. He had two visions around the use of the LSI. One, that it could be used by an everyday line manager, that it did not require a qualified psychologist or something a doctor like that. or something, yeah. yeah. And, but on the other hand, it would be accepted uh, academically. And so mm. the numbers in turn reflect that he certainly achieved both of those because it's used widely by so many universities around the world and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people in managerial positions. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's a great mission, right? Because it's, it's about how do we take it out of the lab or out of the research yep. and put it into the real world and, and make a difference. Yep. That's what we're trying to do. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thanks so much for your time today, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.